This week, as a church, uh, we're starting our summer trimester, and uh, for those of you who haven't been part of our, our church for a very long time, we operate in trimesters, four-month blocks, so we generally have spring, summer, fall, and that's just kind of harkens back to our days as a campus church. That's just kind of how we operate. It's the school model, too. So we're kicking off our summer trimester, and we're launching a series, a new series this week that uh, we've entitled What the Bible Doesn't Say. And so it's going to be an interesting series. I'll go through what it means in just a little bit. But in order to do so, I actually, uh, to understand better what our series is going to be all about, we're going to play a little game. So I don't know if you uh, ever watched, maybe like, do you want to play a game? There is a, anyway. So anyway, we're going to play a game today. And so Andrew is going to pass out uh, our Awaken bulletins. So you need to hold on to those. If you've got a pen, have a pen with you. If not, you can borrow from the person next to you. But uh, we're just going to play a fun little game. I know some of you are competitive. And so I'm trying to be balanced here. So we're going to have fun, but we have prizes for those of you who are competitive. And uh, I've got them right next to me if, if those of you want to kind of know what they are. So here's what we're going to do in the game. So all of you have an Awakened Bulletin, and you're going to need one because that's what you're going to write your answers down on. And whoever's sitting next to you is going to keep you accountable to make sure that you're playing this fair. Not that I have to worry about that with you guys. So have a bulletin, have a pen. And then secondly, uh, this game is going to be about Proverbs. Not the book of Proverbs, but Proverbs, in a sense, they're like wise little sayings that pack a lot of wisdom into a very small package, right? So that's what uh, Proverbs kind of means. And what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be sharing with you some Proverbs from around the world, and you're going to have to identify which one and where they came from. So for, as an example, we have a bunch of American Proverbs that most of us are familiar with. Proverbs like, easy come, easy go. Uh, don't judge a book by its cover. Uh, beggars can't be choosers. Better safe than sorry. So do you understand what Proverbs are? They're just these little sayings that pack a lot of wisdom. And so those are American ones, English ones. So what I'm going to do, and these will be kind of fun, I'm going to share with you five Proverbs, and I'm going to give you multiple choice, so you don't have to like choose from some random country around the world, and you simply have to write down on the bulletin portion which, and you can either write the country down, write the country down, write the country down that you feel like or you think that proverb comes from. Is all, are all the rules clear? Awesome. So I'm going to read the first one. And it'll be up here as well, and you have to guess which one. And don't take a lot of time, because we're going to fly through these. The first Proverbs. In a battle between elephants, the ants get squashed. In a battle between elephants, the ants get squashed. And I know it's a game, and I know you're going for answers, but I want you to think about the wisdom of these two. That's like, oh, that's not necessarily something I can relate to in my culture, but I get the idea behind it. Oh, can we flip to the next one? I didn't. Okay, one more. Awesome. In a battle between elephants, the ants get squashed. So you believe it's a Chinese proverb, a South African proverb, or a Thai proverb? All right? Okay, we're moving on. You need a minute? One more? Okay, we're moving on. Next one. Before you score, you first must have a goal. Before you score, you first must have a goal. Is that a Greek 
proverb, a Japanese one, or a Cuban one? You might want to think who's going to be competitive on that list, but... Dun, dun, dun. All right, ready? Next one. I like this. When you go to a donkey's house, don't talk about ears, right? So I don't know if you have people that you would consider donkeys in your life that just kind of... But yes, when you go over to their house, let's not talk about the thing that they're kind of, you know, noted for. So when you go to a donkey's house, don't talk about ears. Is that going to be Jamaican? Greek or Russian? All right, ready? Udon? Awesome. Next one. Shared joy is double joy. Shared sorrow is half a sorrow. I thought, ooh, that was a good one. Shared joy is a double joy. Shared sorrow is half a sorrow. Is that Canadian, Swedish, or French? I had to put, like, friendly countries because... You know, we put Russian down. There's like the Russians. So Canadian, Swedish, or French. All right. One more. Last one. The wolf has a thick neck because he does his job on his own. You got to think about that one for a bit. It's like, ooh, that's a good one. The wolf has a thick neck because he does his job on his own. Is that Russian is it Portuguese or is it a Bulgarian proverb? Some of you are laughing and trying to figure out, I wonder what options Frank would put down to try and confuse me and throw me off. All right. That's kind of like poker, right? Are you going to play the game or are you going to play the player? So anyway, that's good to know. All right, are we all ready? Okay. Now, I'm trusting you guys to be honest. I know the prizes are absolutely amazing and worth cheating for, but that's not the type of people we're going to be. So, uh, honor system, everybody pens down, have your answers. Number one, in a battle between elephants, the ants get squashed. That is a Thai proverb from Thailand. How many of you guys got that one? Good. So you guys are in the running, everyone who's raised their hands. Second one. Before you score, you must you first must have a goal. I thought that was a tricky one, but that's actually Greek. Oh, ho, ho, ho. nice. That's a Greek proverb. This one I actually thought would be the easiest one to figure out, but we'll see. When you go to a donkey's house, don't talk about ears. That's a Jamaican proverb. I mean, come on. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Fourth. Shared joy is a double joy. Shared sorrow is half a sorrow. That was a Swedish proverb. Oh, how many guys are in the running? How many of y'all are in the running still? One, two, three. Oh, sweet. All right, here it is. I know. Bottle Coke or crayons. I wanted to be like, you know, user friendly here. All right, last one. The wolf has a thick neck because he does his job on his own. That is an Bulgarian proverb. Why in the world would I ever choose Bulgaria as a random country off the top of my head? All right. How many of you guys got all five? Did you really? Oh, my goodness. Oh, Neil. All right. So here's what we're going to do. <laughs> I'm going to give you a choice. You can choose your right hand or left hand. Oh. Nice, come on up. And Neil. Well done. 
all done, Neil. I, no, you're the creative artist type. That fits so well, crayons. Awesome. I actually had these little gold statuettes that I was going to bring as prizes, but I left them at home. They weren't real gold, so there's nothing you missed out on. Anyway, so as I shared earlier, our series over the course of summer, it's going to be an extended series, and it's going to be on what the Bible doesn't say. And what do we want to do with this series is kind of take a fun approach to help our church better distinguish the difference between God's truth and cultural truths. And if you guys have been with us over the course of the year or so, you guys are realizing that there's a little something that as your pastors, we're kind of taking a look at our church and saying, there's some things going on that we want to take some time to address. And there is this idea of truth that we kind of want to camp out on for a little bit. And this is just another series to kind of reinforce that idea, but not going through doctrine per se, but specifically distinguishing between biblical truth and cultural truths. In other other words, more specifically, we're going to be taking a look at cultural proverbs that we're all familiar with that the world actually thinks comes from the Bible, but doesn't. We do this type of appropriation all the time. So as we saw, even in those Proverbs, most of them, if not all of them, they weren't familiar to us. They're not Proverbs we grew up with. But all of us would say, but I get the idea. And we probably have something similar to that in our culture. And so we would steal the idea or, or, or twist the proverb around to make it fit our culture. And that's totally fine. Because the point with these Proverbs is the wisdom that they communicate and not necessarily authorship right nobody cares who wrote it or who thought it up first the idea is the wisdom behind it but when it comes to scripture and it's okay to do that with cultural proverbs but it's different with the bible because the bible is god's word and not only does god's word in uh instill and teach and pass along a lot of wisdom but there is an authority that comes with God's word that these cultural ideas don't have. And that's why it's going to be tricky when we're talking about mixing the two ideas because what we're doing when we do so is we're giving these words of wisdom, and they aren't bad necessarily, but we're giving them an authority that they weren't designed to have. And with that, there's a twisting of God's word. There's a twisting of God's truth. And anytime you twist God's truth, it's dangerous. And I want, we're going to take uh, our, a good portion of our summer walking through the ways that these different cultural truths that all of us have heard and most of us believe are, are applicable and true for our lives, to be able to see how them not being biblical or even associating with the Bible could do damage to our faith and even do damage to how we understand and know God. So... That's what our series is going to be all about. One other thing I want to say before we dive in, uh, this is not necessarily an Awakened Q&A series, but this morning will be an Awakened Q&A teaching. And I'll share why the distinction. It's because we have four people teaching over the course of this series, over the course of the next eight weeks or so. And so I didn't want to put the burden on all of us to necessarily run through Q&A, but we might just to put some, turn up the heat a little bit. But this morning will be a Q&A morning. And for those of you who don't know what Q&A uh, teachings are, it's basically the idea is that if you have a question or thought or comment during the course of the teaching that you want to talk a bit more, or you want me to talk a bit more about, text that question, comment, or thought to awakenqna at gmail.com. They'll be on every slide. And uh, we'll take some time to tackle them at the end of the teaching. So, all good? 
load of information. With that all said, let's dive into our series, What the Bible Doesn't Say, a series on cultural sayings that we've been tricked into or assumed were in the Bible, but are not. And this week we're going to begin with God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. There's something about this that makes it seem like it should be biblical, right? Because it's right. If you're willing to take the initiative, if you're willing to put in the work, if you're willing to do your part, then God, why would God not be overjoyed to come alongside you to help you accomplish your goal? After all, God loves you. And God loves it when you work hard and are diligent and are willing to do your part. So, of course, if you're willing to do your part, God will certainly come alongside and help you complete what you can't do on your own. That sounds like it should be a biblical idea if it's not. And you're not alone in feeling that way. The Barna Research Group did a survey in the year 2000, so I know it's a bit dated. But in that research, they specifically asked this question. God helps those who help themselves. Is that a phrase that's found in, or an idea that's found in the Bible? 75% of Americans said that this is a truth found in the Bible. And 68% of Christians believe that it's a statement taught in the Bible. And so 68% of Christians and 75% of Americans would be wrong. So if this saying didn't come from the Bible, then where did it come from? And the answer is no one really knows for sure. But its likely origin comes from uh, one of Aesop's fables called Hercules and the Wagoner. And I know, yes, Ben Franklin also said it, wrote in his almanac, but that was many, many hundreds of years later. Aesop was in about the 6th century, and the fable goes something like this. A wagoner was once driving a heavy load along a very muddy way. At last, he came to a part of the road where the wheels sank halfway into the mire. And the more the horses pulled, the deeper sank the wheels. So the wagoner threw down his whip and knelt down and prayed to Hercules the Strong. Oh, Hercules, help me in this my hour of distress, he cried. Then Hercules appeared to him and said, Tut, man, don't sprawl there. Get up. And put your shoulder to the wheel. The gods help them that help themselves. That's one of Aesop's fables. So it's a fable about this man who in the midst of his work finds himself in a situation that he can't get himself out of. I mean, if the horses are unable to pull and get it unstuck, then what do we expect this man to do? And so he chooses to pray to the strongest god that he knows, Hercules, or Heracles, depending on who he... And amazingly enough, the god or demigod shows up, and he's excited. He's like, Hercules, he could pick this thing up with a finger and get me out of this mess. And instead, Hercules tells him, put your shoulder to the wheel. With the implication that Hercules might help, but you got to first put in part of the work to get yourself unstuck. Now I'll bet most of you, None of you, maybe, have ever heard that parable before. But when you listen to it and you think about it now, you're like, okay, sure, that makes some sense. If we're willing to do our part, 
then certainly God should come alongside. And if, or maybe let's flip it to the way that makes a bit more sense. If you're not willing to work, if you're not willing to do your part, then why should you expect God to help you? Maybe that's an easier way to think about it. And the answer to that question, the answer to that question of if you're not willing to do your part, why should you expect any help from God? The answer to that question in terms of what, the answer is because God is not like us. God is not like us. When we help, we help because there's something in it for us. Or when we help, it's because we're helping someone who's facing a task that they can't do alone. And we see they can't do it alone and they need our help. Or when we help, we help because we see someone who has a great need. Those are the situations in which we decide to lend our efforts and help. But God is not like us. God doesn't wait to help until there's something in it for him. What could you possibly offer God as an incentive to help you out, right? God's help is not dependent upon the greatness of the task or even the greatness of the need. That is not necessarily what drives God to help. And finally, God's help is not dependent on how much you do or how much you do first. God is not like us. So this idea that God helps those who help themselves is not only a wrong idea, but it's a belief that distorts who God is. It's a belief that makes God into someone that he is not. And so not only does it distort our view of God, but if we believe it, it changes us as well from a people that please God to a people that God might despise. And that's illustrated in a story that Jesus tells in the Gospels, uh, in the Gospel of Luke specifically, that we're going to take some time to unpack. So for those of you at the Bible or if you want to read along, it's the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. Starting in verse 9, the story begins this way. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Stop. If you got a Bible, don't read on. This might be the most important sentence we read today. Jesus is saying, I am telling this story to a very specific audience. Those who have confidence, great confidence in their own righteousness, and as a result, scorn everyone else. So maybe another way of saying this, maybe another way that allows us to relate to this or connect to it, Jesus is telling this story to people who put a lot of confidence in their own abilities. Confident that uh, people who are confident that they are godly enough, that they have earned the right to be respected for their goodness for their work, and for their self-discipline. So much so that they look down on those they consider to be lazy, morally questionable, or weak. Because the two kind of go hand in hand. I think that I'm so good that I deserve to be respected. I deserve for people to treat me well. And yes, because I know the work that it took to get me here, I do have a hard time. Maybe not, I have a hard time with those who are lazy, morally questionable, and weak. You know, the type of people who like to ask for help even though they haven't done anything to deserve it. 
This is the audience Luke or Jesus is telling this story to. It continues, verse 10. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers, certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. Pharisees, historically, were men that were respected for their righteousness. They were known for how strictly they held on to and obeyed God's law. They were good men. I think sometimes in our Christian faith, we twist this idea around, but they were good men who were doing their best to follow God's laws, and they believed that the blessings they received from God was a result of their good and righteous deeds, as a result of their obedience. Pharisees were people who certainly believed that God helps those who help themselves. This Pharisee in particular is praying to God, and in the presence of God, he proclaims his own righteousness. Thank you, God, for recognizing all I do for you and blessing me for it. Thank you, God, for recognizing all I do and blessing me for it. That's the essence of this man's prayer. In contrast, Jesus shares the prayer of the tax collector, verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Tax collectors were in a very different class of people. These were Jews who collected money from other Jews, their own people, in order to pay them to a Roman government that has oppressed them. So they were not very well liked. On top of that, tax collectors would often collect more than the tax in order to pay their income, and the Roman government allowed them to do it because they didn't care. They simply wanted their money They wanted the tax collectors to pay it, and so whatever they collected for that work was fine with them. So they're not a very liked or honorable people. And in fact, everyone knew that that was what tax collectors did, which is what made them such a despised group. And yet this one has the audacity to enter into God's temple and pray. He had the humility to stand at a distance, to keep his eyes and head bowed, and his prayer was not a prayer for blessing, but a prayer for mercy. Jesus closed the story and the lesson with these words. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exhausted. I'm sorry, exalted. <laughs> exhausted too, but... So this story uh, doesn't have the same impact for us today as it did for those who are listening to the story in front of Jesus for the first time. And the reason for that is because as Christians, we've gotten used to this idea that Pharisees were the villains. But that's not how those who heard this story felt. And so when we hear this story, when we read this story, we actually, most of us, we don't have a problem with the idea of a Pharisee being a bad guy. So maybe a better analogy today, a better way to frame how shocking an idea this would have been for the people listening to it, I'll just change the idea a bit, right? 
So maybe if we reframe the story and say that there was a pastor who was praying alongside an abortion doctor and allowing the abortion doctor to be the hero of the story. If that feels a bit uncomfortable and upside down, then maybe you can start understanding the impact of Jesus telling this story to the audience that he has. And maybe you can get the point of the story this morning. What Jesus is teaching in this story is ridiculous. The point Jesus is making in this story is ridiculous. Jesus is saying that what both of these people receive from God is the opposite of what they deserve. The Pharisees deserve, the Pharisee deserved to be rewarded for his hard work, for his discipline, for his obedience, for his following the law to the best of his ability. Of course he does. He's doing the right thing, and that is what would be fair. The tax collector deserved to be punished for his wickedness. He didn't come, if you would read the story, he did not come into the temple saying, Lord, I will stop being a tax collector. He didn't come into the temple saying, Lord, I will stop cheating people. He did not come into the temple with any promises. He deserves the wrath of God because that is what would be fair. So for Jesus to tell the crowd that it was, again, the abortion doctor who just this morning was killing babies is the one who will leave the church justified. And the pastor who this morning was preparing his sermon is the one who will not. Well, that's quite disconcerting. That doesn't seem to be right. And that doesn't seem to make sense. And it's important for us to understand and to have this uncomfortable feeling because this uncomfortable, disconcerting feeling that we have is what connects us to the truth I shared earlier that God is not like us. God does not operate according to our definition of what is fair and what is not. And this is why we as Christians should not believe in this statement or idea that God helps those who help themselves because that statement doesn't leave any room for God's grace. You guys know the definition of grace, correct? Grace defined is us receiving what we have not earned in any way, shape, or form. That is what grace means. And grace is the basis of our relationship with God. And our ongoing battle as Christians, as God followers, is to guard against grace becoming law. And when I say that, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. It's not because law is bad. Law is actually good. In fact, it's really good. Old Testament and New Testament, the law represents God's righteous standard. There's nothing wrong with the law. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount affirms the law and says that if even a single letter disappears, right, that not a single letter will disappear from the law until the end of the age. The reason why we are to guard against grace becoming law is not because the law is bad, but because we are. Our tendency is to start taking credit for the good that comes into our lives. Our tendency is even to start taking credit for the bad that happens. It's because we did something bad, or I'm getting blessed because we obeyed God and did something good. 
it is so easy for Christians today to look at God's blessings and even trials and challenges as being a result of something we did. And whenever we take credit for the work of God in our lives, we steal glory from God and bear it ourselves. And that is why this idea of God helping those who help themselves is so subversively dangerous. Because it gives us credit for God's work, and that is a line we should never, ever cross. I'm going to close out with uh, reading Psalm 121, and then we'll tackle any Q&A questions or thoughts that you have. I'm going to say right now, we won't go through a lot of them because there's a, bunch, there's a few announcements. It's really important for us to go through. But if you have any questions or comments, go ahead and text them, and I'll tackle as many as we can. Psalm 121 closes out like this, or says this. I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? No. Sorry, I added a no. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let you stumble. The one who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleeps. The Lord himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as your protective shade. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon at night. The Lord keeps you from all harm and watches over your life. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, both now and forever. Our help comes from the Lord who never slumbers, who never sleeps. He is all we need, and in him we fully trust. Amen.